Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. Father, your expressions of faithfulness is seen new every morning. For that, we thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace that you are worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. Thank you that the saints in heaven are singing that, and someday we will join them in that great chorus. And we come to you as our creator, as our maker, but also as our father on the merits of Christ's blood. Thank you for amazing grace. While we deserved wrath, you intervened through the blood of Christ as our substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to freely lay down your life and to take it up again, that whoever will call on your name can be saved. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to indwell us, to bear witness to us that we are children of God. Now, we look to you as our teacher, as our helper this morning to take the word that you inspired through each writer to illuminate to our hearts and minds so that we can understand it and apply it appropriately. Father, I know there are brand new Christians and older Christians as well and everything in between. So whatever stage we are in our Christian life, we pray that you would give each one of us something that we can take home today and apply Thank you that as we obey your commands, you reveal yourself to us, that as we obey what we know, we grow. So help us to grow today in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Please come and strengthen me and fill me and use me and speak to every person wherever they may be listening. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take God's word. Would you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4? This morning, we turn a corner in this great book. We move into the third section where Jesus begins to tell John about future events that he records to us. Now, for the average person, the future is very important. You turn on the television and there's a good chance you're going to hear someone making some kind of prediction about the future. It might be some scientist who is forecasting some new technology coming down the pike. It might be some pundit who will pontificate on the next election, or maybe some ambassador who is dealing with world peace and what he believes the outcome will be. And I suppose the one we hear most accurately every day is the weather forecast, right? (laughs) Well, the future is big business. In fact, Americans this year will spend in the billions of dollars through the occult of the new age to learn something about their future. Yet the Bible is clear that only God truly knows the future. And of course, we should be interested in the future. And most Christians are. Whenever a pastor preaches on Revelation, attendance begins to shoot up. We should know something about the future because the future should dictate how we live now. So this morning, we're going to deal with some challenging scripture. It's not an easy passage. And if I were preaching the highlights of the Bible, I would skip this. I would skip Revelation 4 and just go, or just maybe deal with a couple verses in it. But we're going to go through every verse by God's grace, and you get what you can. Understand that teaching the Bible, you're teaching some people brand new truths they've never heard before, and you have to do that as a pastor, like a teacher teaching their students their numbers. At the other end of the spectrum, you have teachers who are teaching their students calculus and everything in between. So wherever you are, don't worry about what you don't know. Take what God gives you this morning and apply it to your life. Let's begin by reading the text, Revelation chapter 4. We want to begin in verse 1 where we left off. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately... I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads." 
Out from the throne comes flashes and lightning and sound and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things because of your will they existed and were created. Let me take a moment to set the context. We've learned from Revelation 1 and verse 7 that the theme of the book is that Christ is coming again on the clouds in glory. And we also learned in Revelation 1 and verse 19 what the outline of the book was. If you remember, therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So in Revelation 1, he writes about the things he had seen, and he records for us that glorious vision of the Lord Jesus in heaven. Then, beginning in chapter 2, all the way through the end of chapter 3, which we've spent the last seven sessions on, he records Christ's message of what is, of seven literal actual churches that were functioning in the day that John was given this revelation. But then he is going to write about those things that will take place after these things. After these things, the last three words of Revelation 1.19 and the first three words of Revelation 4 and verse 1. After these things. So beginning in chapter 4, we move into the future section. Now he starts by giving us a picture of what is actually going on in heaven after the church is removed. What we're going to begin to read in these next several weeks in the fourth and fifth chapters is what will take place after the church is caught up. In the fourth chapter, we see the Father on the throne. In the fifth chapter, we see God the Son next to the Father and how He has given the scroll to begin to unfold the judgment of God. And so, after these things, it's repeated twice in chapter 4 in verse 1 so that we cannot absolutely miss it. So the things past, chapter 1, it's about the Christ. The things present, chapters 2 and 3, it's about the church. The things future, about the consummation of future things. And he will take us all the way from the catching up of the church through the great tribulation to the glorious return of Christ to the earth, his rule and reign for a thousand years, and then the new eternal state which he will create. So that's kind of where we're at. Now, if you want to take a few notes, there's an outline there in your bulletin. Let's begin with the person sitting on the throne. The person sitting on the throne. Once again, in verse 1, it begins, after these things. And of course, the careful reader will ask, after what things? After the things that he has described, the things that are in chapters 2 and 3. And so, beginning now in chapter 4, we're moving again into the future section of the book. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This, I believe, is a picture of the rapture of the church, and I think it will become apparent to you as you work through the entire book. The church has been repeatedly mentioned in the opening chapters. We will not see the church mentioned at all until chapter 19 when we come back with Jesus in glory. And so it's not by accident that what we're going to study, the great tribulation period, God's people are not here. Why? Because God promised that he would remove them. We studied that promise in Revelation 3 and verse 10. Let me refresh your minds with it. Jesus is addressing the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. 
you're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. So these people gave evidences that they had met Jesus. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There is an hour of testing. It's called the great tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world. There's never been a time in human history when the entire planet at once was under great turmoil, but that time is coming. I will take you out from that hour of testing. That's the promise. I will keep you, ektereo, out of, from. He doesn't say I'll carry you through it and sustain you while you're here during the great tribulation. He says, I'm not going to keep you in spite of the hour of testing. The promise is I will take you out of the hour of testing. By the way, this promise made originally to the church at Philadelphia that he will um, uh, remove them is absolutely meaningless for those Christians who say that we'll be here for the great tribulation. It would be a meaningless promise to them. Why would it be meaningless that Jesus would sustain them through the tribulation? Because the church in Philadelphia, all the members are dead. They've been dead for a few thousand years. In fact, if you go to the seven churches of the Revelation today, with the exception of two cities, there is no church. So why is this a meaningful promise? It's going to be meaningful to them. They will see a different aspect of the promise. The rapture has two parts. There are people who are alive when Jesus comes. They're taken off the earth. For the Lord himself, 1 Thessalonians 4, will descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Philadelphians who knew Jesus, who are in heaven, because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in that chapter, I didn't read it, but you can read it for yourself. He will bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's going to take the departed saints... He'll bring their spirits back from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first, the second half of the rapture. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and will always be with the Lord. The church is going to literally disappear from the earth. It could happen today. It could happen next week. No one knows for sure. There's no prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and gather his church. That's why the New Testament describes the return of Jesus as imminent. It could happen at any moment. There's all kinds of prophecy that have to happen for the second coming. The second coming is a predicted event, and there are all kinds of things that must unfold. But God promises his people that he will remove them. 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation. You say, is the uh, seven-year tribulation an expression of God's wrath? Yes, it is. That's what Revelation 6.16 calls it. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The seven-year tribulation is an expression of God's wrath that will turn into his eternal wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 says that we are not waiting for wrath, but we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So this is a promise he made to the church at Philadelphia who had the marks of genuine conversion. I will take you out of the hour of testing that will come upon the whole earth. You say, that's a great promise for them. What does it mean to me? Well, it's a promise that he makes not just to them, but he makes to all the churches. It's a promise that he applies to every born-again Christian. This is not what he says to the church, but what he says to the churches. Now, this is a frightful day that is coming. Let me read the words of Jesus when he describes these seven years that we're going to study in detail. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So because the church at Philadelphia had persevered and showed the marks of conversion, I'll keep you out of that hour of testing. And he who has an ear, let him hear what he says, not to the church, 
but to the churches. This applies to every church, to every congregation, whether it's the church in Philadelphia or the church in Beaufort, South Carolina this morning. Now, some have tried to say that we will be here during the tribulation, and we will see that that is an impossible position to hold if you just plainly interpret the revelation. Some will say, well, the promise that God made to Philadelphia is he will uh, keep them somehow during, he will deliver them from God's wrath during the tribulation. That that's the promise that he made, that since they were such deeply committed Christians, while they're here for the tribulation, they just won't feel it. Listen, all you have to do is read Revelation and you discover a great multitude of people who have their heads cut off, who are executed. Tribulation saints are not promised deliverance. Only the church is promised to be delivered from the wrath to come. Now again, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. By the time we're done, I think you will see clearly that this open door is in reference to the church that has been raptured. Now, the word rapture is not found in the Bible, and some would say, oh, it's not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word trinity. Actually, the word rapture is in the Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. The Latin Bible was the only translation used by the body of Christ for virtually a thousand years. The words caught up are the words rapto, and so we have adopted the word rapture. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Some have taught that we'll be here for the tribulation so that the church can be purified and prepared for heaven. That's good Roman Catholic theology, but it's not a good biblical theology. In the 7th century, Pope Gregory invented the doctrine of purgatory. He also adopted for himself the doctrine of papal infallibility, that whenever the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he speaks with absolute authority. And of course, because Catholics do not believe that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, that if you don't live a good enough life now, that when you die, and the only exception to this in Catholic theology are the saints, in the New Testament, every Christian is a saint, the newest Christian, the oldest Christian, the most consistent, the most inconsistent. Every Christian in the New Testament is called a saint. But in Roman theology, only those who have lived a certain life and have done certain things are deemed saints. So most of us wouldn't fall into that category. And so they teach that when you die, you go to purgatory. And once you've suffered enough in purgatory, per Mary's dictate, you are released from purgatory and brought into heaven. Now, the Bible is very clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One second after you die, if you know Jesus, you are in his presence. And so it's a picture that God gives all the way through Scripture. For instance, just before God poured out his wrath in the great flood, he put Noah and his family safely in the ark. Just before God rained fire and brimstone down on heaven, he removed Lot and his two believing daughters. And just before God destroyed Jericho, he took Rahab and her family out of that city of Jericho. And just before God pours wrath upon the world, he will open a door and let the church in. Now, the person on the throne, of course, as we will see, is God the Father, Jesus, as we'll see beginning next time, and we'll be in chapter 5 for a few weeks, is standing at the right hand of the throne. But there are three aspects of the Father's character that are underscored. First, that the Father is great in his government, that he's great in his government. We get that from verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So here's John being given a vision of heaven, and the center is this throne. And of course, the throne is a major theme and subject in the Revelation. It appears some 40 times throughout the book, 12 times in this chapter alone. And by the way, one of the truths that we're struck with in this chapter is that heaven is not a figment of someone's imagination. It's a very real place. When we come to the end of the book, we're going to learn that the place people go today, it's called by many names, paradises, paradise, the Father's throne, so forth. I mean, the Father's house, uh, heaven. That place is going to literally, the new Jerusalem, heaven, is going to literally come down and become the capital city of a brand new planet. The current earth that we live on, God is going to burn with fire. 
but God's going to take the capital city heaven and bring it down. It's a very real place. There's real people. There's real streets. There's real travel. There's real gates. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you all, come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's talking about a real place. And the average person knows very little about heaven. They think of it as a place with wispy clouds and we're playing harps. And for all of eternity, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do in our boredom. Nothing could be further from the truth. By the time we're done, I hope you will have a clear conceptual picture of what heaven is really like. And so I say that this first is a picture of the father and his government because the throne is a symbol throughout the Bible of the rule and reign and authority and government of God. Now, remember, we learned in the opening verse that the revelation was communicated and we saw on the margin signified. The word signified, the first four letters were sign, S-I-G-N. The revelation is signified. So there are many symbols that God uses all the way through the revelation. And in Scripture, you find what's called Christophanies. That's when Christ appears before the incarnation in the Old Testament. But there's also some theophanies. Theos, God. A theophany is an appearance of God. For instance, in Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham. And so this isn't a theophany of, of sorts. Obviously, God is spirit, so he doesn't need a throne to sit on. But God will often wrap himself in human characteristics so that we can get a handle of what he's like. When the Bible says the arm of the Lord is not short, he doesn't have a literal arm. When it says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, God the Father doesn't have literal eyes. Those are anthropomorphisms. Those are human characteristics ascribed to God so that we can better understand what he is like. But thrones in the Bible symbolize authority. And what's communicated here is that God's government, God's rule, God's sovereignty as at work during this time. We're told in verse 2 uh, that this throne is standing. Now that's important for John to hear. Because remember, as we come to the end of the age, the Bible predicts that ultimately things will not get better. Things will get worse. There'll be a downgrade in human behavior. People will become more hateful, more violent, more aggressive, more sinful. Men's hearts will grow cold. And then after the church is removed and the last vestige of light and salt is gone from the earth, all hell is going to break loose. And so John will need to remember that as he receives these truths, that there's a throne that is standing, that God is in charge, that while sin appears to be winning, God in the end will overrule. History, we used to say, is his story, and indeed it is. And so the events that will unfold are given from the vantage point of heaven, that the events on the earth are not capturing God by surprise. That there's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. That God is not wringing his hands up in heaven and saying, do you see that? You see what they're doing down there? Man, I didn't know that was going to happen. He is in absolute control and he knows what is happening. And verse 1 says these events, note, must take place and they will take place because God has planned the future. Now, there's a new theology that has come into evangelicalism. It's called open theism. And unfortunately, what was once a great evangelical press, InterVarsity Press, can no longer be trusted. And so sometimes they put out books on open theism. Open theism that is being taught in a lot of American evangelical churches says that God doesn't know everything. It basically says that while God doesn't know how things will turn out, he knows all the potential options, but it's all dependent on us. Listen, God is in control, and if God doesn't know everything, you've got a lot to fear. We're in big trouble. Some people are teaching today that man is dictating what is going to happen in the future. Look, if man is dictating what is going to happen in the future, it is a colossal failure from his past. If Adam and Eve couldn't pull it off in a perfect environment, I can tell you right now, fallen man won't make it happen. But God is sitting on the throne. That means he's in power, he's in authority. We use the term today, we speak of a congressman who's been seated, that is, he's in office, or we speak of someone who lost the election, that he was unseated. 
And so God is seated on the throne, and that is going to be emphasized and underscored all the way through the revelation that God knows what he is about, and he is in absolute control. So the Father is great in his government, but also the Father is great in his glory. The first half of verse 3 we read, And he was sitting, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. So John sees the Father seated on the throne, but his figure is somewhat lost in this display of dazzling light. It's a description of God in one sense without really being a description. Notice, no form is given because no form can be given. The Bible says that God dwells in, uh, in unapproachable light. No man can see God and live, the Scripture says. We can see His glory. And had not the Lord Jesus tabernacled among us, and He became flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt, the word dwelt is tabernacled. God tabernacled among us, literally it says. Had the Lord Jesus not taken on our humanity, you could not have looked upon Him before the incarnation and lived. And so the Father was sitting... And his appearance is like the jasper stone and also a sardius in appearance. So John is using this vivid, descriptive uh, similes. It's like or it's the appearance of in order to describe the Father. Now, the jasper stone is not some opaque stone. We know that from Revelation chapter 21, 11. It's a clear stone. It's probably, who knows, maybe a diamond. The Bible says in that chapter, it is crystal clear. So it speaks of radiance and brilliance and translucence. And in many ways, it's a reflection of God's holiness. But not only does he speak of the jasper stone, around the throne, there's another stone, a sardius in appearance. A sardius is ruby red. Why would God have a ruby red sardius type of light around the throne? Because of the blood of Christ. You say, I get that for Jesus. How do I get that for the Father? The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And the members of the Godhead are inseparable. You say, how could the cross be a demonstration of the Father's love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. How is that an expression of God's love? If he loved us so much, why didn't he come down and die? Because the members of the Godhead are so inseparable that for Jesus to die, for him to give of himself, it's a demonstration of the Father's love. To see me, Jesus said, is indeed to see the Father. And so we will dig deeper concerning these stones, and I'll save it for later when we come to the end of the book. But I just want to briefly mention them. We could also mention that the high priest wore a, a tablet with 12 stones on that tablet. And the first stone was the jasper stone, and the second and the last stone was the sardius. And it was a reminder to Israel that God had the people of Israel on his heart. So God's great in his government. He's great in his glory. Third, the Father is great in his grace. He's great in his grace. Look now, if you will, further into verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. In other words, around the throne are the colors of a rainbow. And a rainbow would immediately make the believer think of God's incredible grace. Occasionally, when I fly on an airplane, I get to see a 360-degree rainbow. Some of you have seen that from a jet. That's the only place you can see it on the earth, up in the sky. No doubt John never saw a rainbow from the sky that was 360 degrees. But the term that's used here describes a circle. He's seen a circular rainbow around the throne. And it's like an emerald. It's green. And green in Scripture is a significant color because it's the color of life. And so God has this rainbow that is round that describes, in essence, the eternal life, that he's an eternal being. And when you believe on him, he gives you eternal life. Now, remember that the rainbow was God's promise that he would never flood the world again. Now, he will destroy the world a second time, but the means will be different. 
The Bible says he'll burn it with fire. And at that point, it will be gone. There will be no people on it. They will have all been removed. And he'll consume the whole world with fire. In a moment's time, it will be gone. And he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. But the rainbow in Scripture for right now is a symbol of the grace of God Almighty. Uh, recently, I was speaking at a world religions conference with Ken Ham, and uh, here's a picture of the ark. And he decided to light it up at night in the rainbow, and I thought this would be a helpful shot. And, and of course, it made the LGBTQ community go nuts. They are so mad at him. He has to have 24-hour security at this ark. He's got a special antenna. He brought me on the roof of it. Special antenna. I said, what's that thing up there? He said, that's a drone killer. What's that? He said, if a drone flies anywhere in our airspace, it disables a drone and makes it fall from the ground. I said, where'd you get that? The Israeli government gave it to us. Mm. All right. Here's the thing. There are people that hate them so much, they're afraid that one of these drones will drop some explosives on the place. And so I was in New England recently, and I saw this church, and of course, uh, on the front of it was love, a banner of love, and the rainbow flag, and their message was, we love homosexuals and their lifestyle. We love homosexuals and drunks and prostitutes and drug addicts, and anybody is welcome here. Now, to be a member, it's a different story. But God calls homosexuality sin. And so people often take symbols that God gives and they distort them and they manipulate them. But God in the Bible uses the rainbow as an expression of his amazing sovereign grace. So the person sitting on the throne is great in his government, great in his glory, and great in his grace. Let's also think about the persons positioned before the throne, the persons who are positioned before the throne. I want you to notice carefully the various personages that are found here at the throne of God, three distinct groups. First, the elders of the church are present. The elders of the church are here. In verse 24, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, some commentators, not wanting the church to be raptured before the great tribulation, say these are not 24 church saints. These are 24 angels. Now, that's a stretch because these 24 elders are sitting on thrones indicating that they are reigning with Jesus. And Jesus promised his church in a number of places and through the various writers of the New Testament that those who live with him will rule with him, that we will someday reign with Christ. Angels are never seen as reigning with Christ. In fact, their role, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, is to serve as ministering spirits sent out to render service for those who will inherit salvation. But the church is repeatedly promised co-regency with Christ. In addition, the word is elders, presbyteroi. In Greek, it's never used of angels. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation, it's used of the leaders of Israel. And in the New Testament, it's used of the leaders in the church. And it's usually used in reference to, to men who are older in age. So it's somewhat of an oxymoron to speak of older angels because angels don't age. In either case, uh, these are the elders of the church. It reminds me of a little girl who went to church one Sunday and she came back. Her mom in the car said, well, what did you learn today in honey, honey in church in Sunday school? She said, well, we're studying the book of Revelation. Well, what did you learn in the Revelation? We found out that only 24 Presbyterians will go to heaven. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure there'll be that many, but no, I'm just kidding. Now, now that I've alienated all the Presbyterians, it's noteworthy that these are church saints. Now, certainly angels can be in white, but white garments are more commonly associated with believers, and that's certainly true in the immediate context. We just read in Revelation 3.5 of the believers in Sardis who are dressed in white garments, or Revelation 3.18, the lukewarm Laodiceans who needed white garments. And of course, uh, crowns are never promised in the scripture to angels. Crowns are only promised to believers, not just leaders in the church, but any Christian. There are crowns, five that are listed in the New Testament that you as a Christian can earn. 
Now, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But as you yield your life to Jesus Christ and you make yourself available for the Holy Spirit to work through you, in eternity, God will reward with you with a number of crowns. In addition, the number 24 in the Bible is a representative number of a larger group. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, there are 24 officers of the sanctuary. And as you read that passage of Scripture, you recognize that they uh, represent a number of thousands of priests. In 1 Chronicles 25, there is 24 divisions of singers that represent a number of mass choirs. 24 do not represent angels. These represent the church who have gone through the open door, who've been caught up and raptured in our now in the presence of Christ. Listen, you just let Scripture interpret Scripture. And God has not destined us for wrath. He has destined us for salvation. And so again, as this slide underscores, there's 24 thrones, 24 elders representative of the church are sitting on them. They're in white garments and they are given crowns. Those are terms that describe the church. So the elders of the church are present. In addition, the seven spirits of God are present. The seven spirits of God are also present. We read now in verse 5, out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now remember, as we studied in Revelation 1.1, this book is signified. It's communicated in symbols. And when you read this, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, when I read that, my mind immediately went back to Moses up on top of Mount Sinai. Why don't you write out in the margin Exodus 19, 18, and 19, Exodus 19, 18, and 19, and let me read it to you. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Thirty-eight years later, at the end of Moses' life, he recounts this experience, and he records it in Deuteronomy 4. There he says, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sounds of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. And in the New Testament, that gives us divine commentary on this. In the book of Hebrews, he looks back at this event and he writes this, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was much like that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. So Moses spoke of a mountain that was covered in smoke and lit by flashes of lightning and the earth shook and sounded like thunder and it was so overwhelming the sounds that the people of Israel begged that they would hear no more. And so these flashes of lightning, these thunder clouds as it were, are underscoring that there is a big storm that is about to be unleashed. In the fifth chapter, the scroll will be handed to the sun. And in the sixth chapter, we will begin to study the seven seals, beginning with the four horses of the great apocalypse. In heaven, the storm is over. There's a rainbow. There's peace. But what is about to happen on the earth is absolutely indescribable. The age of grace will have ended. And the age of God's wrath will begin. And the people will say in the sixth chapter, Fall on us! And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Look at verse 5. And after there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, here's another reference to the Holy Spirit. The next slide shows us from Isaiah 11. We studied this already, that there are seven attributes in ministries of the Holy Spirit that will be seen in the Messiah's life. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Seven characteristics. Likewise, the prophet Zechariah gives a similar description concerning the person and ministry of the spirit. Let me dust off your minds with that text. Zechariah 4. What do you see? The angel asked Zechariah. What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold. 
and it's bowls on the top of it, and it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to him, do you not know what these are? And he said, no, my Lord. Then the angel responds and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by my power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That is the promise that God's seven lamps would not only function through Messiah, but now today is functioning through the church. And there is an untold of reservoir of power as seen by the two olive trees habitually feeding these seven lamps. God will meet you. God will empower you. But here is a picture of the Spirit of God here in Revelation 4 before the throne. This is a, a Trinitarian picture as we're going to see before we're done with these two chapters of Father, Son, and Spirit. The seven spirits of God. We don't believe in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven spirits. We believe there is one Holy Spirit, but there are seven expressions or attributes that are underscored. And we're going to see him appear over and over and over again some 14 times here in the book of Revelation. Now remember, this is a scene of judgment, of fire and lightning, and God is about ready to unleash his wrath upon the earth. Right now, the Spirit's ministry is in grace as He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But there's coming a time when He will deal like the other members of the Godhead with people in wrath. And at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says, every mouth will be shut. There'll be no excuses when all the lost people of all time are arraigned before the living God. Every word, every deed, every thought, every act will be brought before the living God and probably brought to the forefront of people's minds by the Spirit of God and they will see that they are worthy of judgment. There'll be no bravado in that day. You know, I love Winston Churchill as a leader and I sure hope he repented. But in his biography that I read years ago, I underscored it. He said, I am, when he was asked if he was ready to meet God, he said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. There'll be no swagger before this throne. Every mouth will be shut. And the Spirit of God in judgment will not be offering a tongue of fire to communicate because there'll be no evangelism and no second chances in heaven. He will not be coming like an illuminating warm torch or like the flutter of a dove. He will be coming in judgment with the Father and the Son. And so he speaks of the seven spirits of God who are present. Notice also the four living creatures of praise are present. The four living creatures of praise are here as well. In verse 6, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, now, this is another one of those places where human vocabulary just seems inadequate. And so he's trying to describe the, the shimmering floor in this awesome courtroom, this throne room of God. A good architect will often put a uh, reflecting pond in, in front of one of his works of art in order to magnify and double the beauty by reflecting it during the day. Well, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, the old King James has four beasts, and that was a good translation for the 17th century, but not today. Uh, the new King James, like the NASB, says four living creatures. It's the word zoar. It refers to a living creature, not some beast like Godzilla. And certainly it's not some beast like the Antichrist who's called the beast, which is an entirely different Greek word. These are four living creatures. And you will find these four living creatures described also by the prophet Ezekiel, where they are called cherubim. Cherubim, like other angels who, for instance, can take on human form. The Bible says you can entertain an angel and not know it. Cherubim apparently can also change their form and the way they look. 
and they are a high class of angels. Ephesians 6 says that, and you would expect it, God being a God of order, that angels are organized. Even fallen angels are organized. They're organized by rank and file. Lucifer was once a cherubim. He was once one of these angels in this high rank, the anointed cherub. Cherub is the singular, cherubim is uh, the dual or the plural, depending on how it's uh, used in the original. But these are not little cupids with wings, little babies. Angels don't have angel babies with one another. We'll be like angels in heaven. The Bible says we won't procreate. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. But these angels, these four living creatures, are real angelic beings, and they are awe-inspiring, and the way God created them communicates a message that you don't want to miss. Let me read verse 7 first. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, or some of your translations say an ox. You could render it either way. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now put out in the margin next to this, Ezekiel 1, 10 and 11, listen to this. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, their wings were spreading out above and below and so on. So both the prophet Ezekiel... And the Apostle John described the fourfold faces of these cherubim, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. Now, I told you that when we began the book that one of the reasons people have difficulty understanding the revelation is, number one, they don't understand the unconditional promises that God made to the people of Israel that he's not done with them, but largely because they don't know the Old Testament. And out of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 are direct allusions to the Old Testament. The challenge is he never says Isaiah said or Moses wrote or King David said. No, it's just stated some imagery from one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And it's beautifully put together, and it's really helpful because in the Old Testament, so many of the prophecies, especially in relation to the second coming, are spread out all over those 39 books. But what happens is God pulls them all together in the Revelation. You begin to see the chronology of those prophecies. And so before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Let me read verses 6 and 7 together like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, I'll detail it later on, but for now, let me just say that the eyes symbolize discernment and knowledge. We're going to study this in more detail, so we'll save it or we'll never finish this sermon. Verse 7, the first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. Now, I wrote a little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. I don't make any money on it, so I'm not here to sell books. But I go through five divine proofs on why we can say the Bible is the only book God wrote, why he didn't inspire the Quran or the Vedas or the Upanishads or the Book of Mormon or any other writing you can think of. God only wrote one book. And one of the ways that we know that the Bible is uniquely God-authored is fulfilled prophecy because only God knows the future. And so as you read of this description, it is not by accident that it is here because it is a picture of God working behind the scenes. Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, the law being the first five books, the prophets, a description of the rest of the Bible. Don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, it's yod. Yod is like an apostrophe in English. It's the smallest of the Hebrew letters. Not the smallest letter or stroke. Stroke is a stroke of the pen that will distinguish different Hebrew letters, like the letter O in English, the printed letter. The letter Q has a stroke that distinguishes the two. Jesus is saying not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will pass away until it is all fulfilled. Now, the book of Numbers is a book about numbers. 
And when you read the book of Numbers, you think, why all these numbers? Why does God bother to write all these numbers down? Now, if you remember, after Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, uh, God gave him specific instructions not only to number the people, but also to build a tabernacle. And a tabernacle was a place of worship. Here's a picture of one that we saw when we're in Israel. It's made to scale. Uh, some Messianic Jews, some Jews who believe Jesus, Yeshua is Lord, built the tabernacle, and they used this as a, it as a teaching tool. Rabbis came down from Jerusalem, and they measured every square inch of it, and they wanted to make sure that it was done to the specs that God gave in the Bible, and of course, it passed their inspection. But what God did is he used this as a foreshadowing of what God was going to do with Christ. Some of our children studied the tabernacle in one of our vacation Bible schools. We saw how even the furniture in the tabernacle was placed in the shape of a cross and not by accident. Well, the tabernacle, if you remember in the Torah, was placed in the center of the camp. And the 12 tribes of Israel would camp around the tabernacle. Now, don't get confused because when you think about the 12 tribes, there's a baker's dozen. There's really 13. You say, help me, Pastor. Well, remember, Jacob had 12 sons. And one of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery, became the prime minister of Egypt. And when he was down there in Egypt and a great famine came upon the land, uh, in the interim, he got married to a lady by the name of Asenath. Someone asked me recently, is it true that there are black Jewish people? I said, of course there are. How do you get black Jewish people? <laughs> Joseph married a believing Egyptian by the name of Asenath, and he had two sons. And those two sons were later adopted by Jacob when he comes down with the other boys, and they become part of the 12 tribes. So you have the Levites, and God said this. They were in the center. You can read it in Numbers 1 and 2. Read those two chapters this afternoon. They camped immediately around the tabernacle. And then God said this in Numbers 2-2. The sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, his own banner, with the banners of their father's household. And they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So there's four groups, each group under one banner, three tribes in each group. Four times three is 12. Now the Talmud is written in the second century AD. For years, for centuries, there was what the Jews called oral tradition. And in the second century AD, they decided to write it all down. And in the Talmud, they describe what the four banners are. The four faces of these living creatures that Ezekiel underscores that John writes about here in the Revelation represented the four banners. And the rest of the Bible documents that fact. For instance, here's a picture of the tribe of Judah. Those who camped under the line of the tribe of Judah were Issachar and Zebulun, and they camped on the east side of the tabernacle. Here's a picture of Reuben. Reuben camped on the south side of the tabernacle along with the tribes of Simeon and Gad under his banner. And no doubt it's a man because God records that his first man and his family, Jacob's family, his firstborn, of course, was Reuben. Then there's Ephraim. Ephraim, here's his banner, that of an ox. And Benjamin and Manasseh camped under his banner on the west side of the tabernacle. And the Bible repeatedly describes Ephraim like an ox, a trained heifer that loves to thresh. Here is a picture of Dan. Dan is a picture of an eagle. And of course, Naphtali and Asher camped under the banner of the eagle. And of course, Jacob said, Dan shall judge his people. And repeatedly in Scripture, God will use the eagle as a symbol that swoops down and judges. So Scripture confirms what the Talmud actually writes, that there are four banners that the people camped under. And by the way, I think it's interesting to note, a number of commentaries will bring it out, that the four Gospels are also representative of these four banners. For instance, Matthew proves that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he goes through by documenting from Abraham that Jesus is indeed Messiah, the one who would come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David to give his life. Mark's gospel pictures Jesus like an ox, as a servant. He came not to serve, 
Mark will write to be, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke, he portrays Christ as a man. He underscores his humanity. And so he takes his ancestry, not like Matthew does to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. And he shows that Jesus is indeed the last Adam. And John's gospel repeatedly describes Jesus like an eagle that judges. And more than any gospel, it underscores that all judgment has been given to the Son. Now remember, the Bible ultimately is all about Jesus. And so God has this tent. God has this tabernacle. And how did this tabernacle come about? Well, listen, it wasn't original with Moses. God specified, I mean, right down to the fabric in every single detail how this little tabernacle was to be built. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews in the 8th chapter reminds us that the tabernacle in heaven um, and the one on earth were parallels, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So Hebrews 8, if you were with me in our study of Hebrews years ago, tells us that the true tabernacle in heaven is reflected by the tabernacle that God had them make upon the earth. It's a model, as it were, of the throne of God. Now, stay with me. I know we're in deep theology, but you can get it, and we need to get it, and we need to apply our minds to it. Remember how God said they were to camp, north, south, east, and west. That was the configuration that God gave, and it was very carefully specified. The width of their camp could not be larger than that of the Levites. And so if you began to bleed over into the southeast quadrant, you were out of place. If you began to bleed over into the northwest quadrant, you were out of place. You had to camp according to the way God dictated it. And so on this next slide, for instance, you will see that on the east side where the entrance of the tabernacle was, was Judah along with the tribes that camped under his banner, 186,400. Then, as you can see on the next tribe, you had this, the, the banner of a man, of Reuben, 151,450 people. Now, the numbers, when you read of all these different tribes, seem meaningless. But when you put the numbers together under each banner, you get these summaries. You get Ephraim under the banner of a calf, along with its two other tribes, 108,100. And then Dan, they're under the banner of an eagle. Listen, it's not by accident that from heaven's perspective, even when Balaam had King Balak and they're up on a ridge and he is trying to get Balaam to curse Israel, when they look down on the camp, this camp that for nearly 40 years went through the wilderness, every single night, they camped in the pattern of a cross. And the tabernacle within the center was a picture of a cross. You say, well, that's a coincidence. There's no coincidences in Scripture. Every number, every detail is given by the inspiration of God and for a reason. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures. You you search the Old Testament. I adopted the name of our ministry from this verse. You search the Scriptures. And like the Bereans who are more noble and that they search the Scriptures daily, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them, You have eternal life. It is these, the Old Testament, that testify about me. All the scripture, including revelation, including every word, every name, every number, point to the Lord Jesus. Finally, and just quickly, let's think about the praise emanating from the throne. The praise emanating from the throne of God. Three dimensions of this praise are highlighted. First, the span of the praise is given to us in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And one word, what is God like? He is holy. When Isaiah is given a vision, he hears holy, holy, holy. And John in the Revelation hears the same words. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. 
And listen, if you've been born again, God has asked you to reflect his holy character. And if there is anything that will overwhelm you, that will get your attention when you step into heaven, it will be that God is holy. He is the opposite of us in every word, thought, and deed. He is absolutely perfect. And so the span of praise, affirming his holiness is day and night around the throne. Think about the source of this praise here in verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, these living creatures that exemplify and reflect Christ, here's this angelic host. Look, I love a, a full worship service. When you hear the people of God praising God, well, just imagine the voices emanating thousands upon millions of angels affirming the holiness of God, but not just the angels, but also the redeemed. The 24 elders that are representative of the church will fall down before him who sits in the throne and will worship him who lives forever ever and ever and will cast their crowns before their throne. When the living creatures praise the Lord, the saints of God represented by these elders will rise from their thrones and they will fall down and they will give their crowns to Christ. You say, I thought we were to wear them on our heads. Not for long. You say, why do they give them to Christ? Because he gave them to them to begin with. He saved them and redeemed them with his own blood. And anything you've ever done, anything I've ever done that's been worth anything, worthy of a reward, is because you yielded to the Holy Spirit and God did it through you. And in heaven, he will reward you. Crowns are not just for the elders. Throughout the New Testament, there are five crowns that can be given to any child of God who will serve the Lord faithfully. Now, down here, we may try to keep some praises for ourselves, but up there, Jesus will get it all. There'll be no big shots in heaven. Jesus will be the center of heaven. And if you will yield yourself today as a holy and living sacrifice, you will have some crowns to cast at his feet. Now, beyond the span and the source, let's think finally about the sound of praise. The sound of praise at the throne. I love this verse. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. In heaven, the saints will actually shout out loud. Now, you may not like doing it there, but we're going to praise the Lord like we've never done. And you may sing a little bit off key here, but there you'll have a redeemed body. Everybody will be in tune. It will be glorious. And notice, worthy. Packed in that word is the word worth. God's worth is worthy of our praise. And they praise him for his works. I mean, just think about what he has done for you. Think about all that he has created. It's not out of the glue into the zoo that became you. It's not two sparks somewhere out and out of space that formed this universe. We will witness tomorrow an eclipse. That's the handiwork of God. We can tell you when the next one is and the next one and the next one because God is a God of order and a, a God of design and his eternal attributes and divine nature are seen through all that he has created. We will praise the Lord for you created all things and we will praise him for his will. You created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. The elders recognize what we will more fully understand someday, that God created you for his own pleasure and for you to worship him. We'll study this more. Now, this is a glimpse of glory, just a glimpse. We're going to detail it, or John will for us by the time we come to the end of the book. But listen, when the church is caught up and the door is opened, will you be there? Or will you be left for the worst time in human history? Will you be praising the Lord in heaven? Or will you be down here upon the earth taking the mark of the beast? Will you be giving all praise and glory to the lamb who is upon the throne? Well, it all depends on what you do with that lamb. For what you do with him will determine what God will do with you. You confess him and he will confess you. You deny him. And he will deny you for all of eternity and you will have no excuse because he has made a provision for you. Listen, we've got the best news this world will ever hear. 
And the church of the living God in the 21st century needs to be faithful to carry that word. Even this week, looking for opportunities to tell people who will either be everlastingly happy because they confess Jesus as Lord or eternally miserable because they did nothing with him. Holy Father, we thank you today for this chapter of Scripture. It's just a reflection of how awesome you are that no man could have thought this book up. Only you could have written it. And I pray today, Father, for someone who is here, who has never received Jesus as Lord, that today they would turn their lives over to him, that they would trust that his death on the cross and his resurrection is sufficient to save them, that they will not come on the basis of self-merit or good deeds, but as bankrupt sinners casting themselves totally on the Savior who alone can deliver them from the wrath that is to come. Help some dear soul today, wherever they may be, wherever they may be listening, who is uncertain that heaven is their home because they've never rested in what Jesus did. They've never truly believed. Help them to know that you cannot lie, that you promised because of what Jesus did that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help some boy, some girl, some teenager, some older person say, Jesus, I ask you to save even me. What a glorious picture of a throne room, Father, that you've given us a glimpse of in the future when the church is removed. And may we be like the elders to whom Jesus said, well done, thy good and faithful servant, such that you gave them crowns that they could cast at Jesus' feet and worship him with. May we be like living and holy sacrifices yielded to you that you might do your work through us and reward us for it in eternity as we praise Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name and for his sake. Amen.